Hi, I'm Lindsay Pugh. And I'm Joe Nesterok. Welcome to the Woman in Revolt podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Joanna Hogg's Souvenir Trilogy, which includes The Souvenir, The Souvenir Part 2, and The Eternal Daughter, which recently came out in 2022. And because we're going to be talking about Joanna Hogg in general a little bit, we'll probably also touch on her first three films, Unrelated, Archipelago, and Exhibition, throughout our discussion. So I'm I'm very happy we're talking about these films because Joe and I have been on like a Joanna Hogg deep dive revisiting her entire filmography and we've been trying to schedule this for a while and it's finally happening. So yay. Yay, it's finally happening. I'm so excited for this particular podcast because I love Joanna Hogg so much. Lindsay, you introduced me to her a few years ago. I know that we actually watched The Souvenir, I think, together online. And then The Souvenir 2, I was at your house. So we actually got to sit and watch that together. And I think we had rewatched one and two that night, maybe. I don't know. But I just remember becoming an instant fan. So getting to dive more into her work seeing her films. It's really been a treat. Yes, definitely. And I came to her like somewhat later, as I think a lot of people did, because she had her first three films. So Unrelated was 2007. Archipelago was 2010. Exhibition was 2013. But all of those didn't show outside of the UK because they were never on the festival circuit, and then they didn't get released um, until later. And even at that time, it took me a while. Like I feel like she really was not truly on my radar until the souvenir premiered at Sundance, and then I was like, "Oh wait, holy shit! Like this movie is right up my alley. Everything I love about movies. Like I I need to see the rest of this woman's films." So. Yeah, it's kind of my my relationship with Joanna Hogg, a newer a newer love, but definitely one I feel deeply. Absolutely. And we even saw her was it her student film? I believe you said it was Caprice. Yeah. We've even had the privilege of seeing that one, which was just like a slice of surreal heaven. If if anyone can find it, find that movie and watch it. I I enjoyed that one as well. So I feel like it's been a nice journey these last maybe week or two that we've revisited everything and excited to talk about it. Yes. So I think maybe let's just generally, what do you like about Joanna Hogg's films? Why do you think they resonate with you? Oh, wow, that's hard. There's several things I like about her films. The obvious would be, I think they're wonderfully shot. The way that she shoots kind of off kilter and a lot of the action a lot of times happens off camera which I think is interesting cinematography beautiful the editing masterful I love that she uses a lot of non-actors I feel like it brings an authenticity to the situation without a lot of times you can get someone that's overacting or trying to push something on you. And I feel like I don't get that in her films. I also love the way that she keeps things very quiet in her films. A lot of times there's, or most of the time, there's not a ton of dialogue 
or the dialogue just sounds like people aimlessly talking about a subject, and then it's brought around to bring a deeper meaning to you. And I love, I love the relationships that she brings. Her films are based a lot on relationships people are having with each other that they're having with their surroundings. And I, I love that as well. What about you? Yeah, I think everything that you've said and also just the themes that she focuses on are things that resonate with me. Like if you say, oh, let's watch a movie about a woman in crisis. Well, I'm going to watch it. That's all I need to know. Like, <laughs> like literally just woman in crisis. OK, sign me up like on board. Right. Um, so I love those kind of movies that center on women. I love anything about the artistic process and what it means to be a creative person and to live a creative life and how people carve out that space for themselves. And then I think it's also interesting to think about how that impacts relationships. We don't get that in every film, like not every film is about an artist, but the souvenir films are. And then also exhibition is about two artists in relationship with each other. So that's definitely something she's interested in. And then I think also I love that she includes some question of children. This this idea of having children, is it worth it? Is it not? Why do people do it? Are you missing something by not doing it? And that's, again, not in every one of her films, but it comes up in The Eternal Daughter. It comes up in her first three films as well. So it's clearly a preoccupation of hers. So I think just, yes, I love her shooting style, but I think also just the way that she creates her films and the themes that they're centered around are like particularly resonant to me. All of her films seem in a very way, uh, very personal, like she's had some of these personal thoughts and crisis. And we know the souvenir films are definitely almost autobiographical of her life. And it just seems like she gives us so much insight. Not only does she make them personal, but there's a lot of universal truths that she shares just as being a woman. So that that's a delight, too, as well. And I have to ask you, since we're talking about the trilogy, can you pick a favorite of, of the three films that we watched between The Two Souvenirs and The Eternal Daughter? Yeah, I mean, definitely The Souvenir Part 2, I think, has got to be my favorite because it is more centered around Julia's artistic process and her becoming an artist and her using her art to figure out things that have happened in her life. And so, of course, like I'm on board with that. But also, I just love the uh, small roles played by Charlie Heaton, Joe Alwyn, and Richard Iwate. Those characters make short appearances, brief appearances, but they're very meaningful and humorous, and they add a lot of uh, like levity uh, to the films and so to that film. So I think that that film has that film is my favorite. And of her whole filmography, yeah, I'm definitely a souvenir head. I think those films are brilliant, but Souvenir Part 2 is just another level to me. Oh, yeah, I agree. Souvenir 2 is probably my favorite. I I did love all three of them. Souvenir 2 is my favorite. Richard Iwadi is, I bow down to him. I love him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I need to see more stuff with him in it. I loved his character, and I just felt like he brought some comic relief he brought 
just something to make you think. And I think he was kind of a catalyst for Julie. He was just telling her like it is and kind of giving her direction without all the fluff. Make a memorial, make a film, you know, use this death as an inspiration. Just do it, you know, bye, go your way. I'm going my way, bye, you know, and I just, that was refreshing to me. I really like that. Yeah, and I mean, he is in the first one too. And he does, in the first right. one, he has a an awesome scene as well. But in the second one, you get more of him and it is welcome. So yes, yes, he's magic. Yes, for sure. I mean, but a lot, of, a lot of good roles in all the films. But yeah, also Ariane Labed is great. We should mention her as well. She's she plays Garance in the films, and she's oh yes, integral too. And um, who is the guy who plays the Anthony Standen in the Souvenir Two? He's also very good. Yeah, I know his name in the film was Peter, but yeah, he was very. He he played that very with a nice uh, nuance of trying to understand Peter and I think maybe helped Julie kind of understand some things of what she was trying to say about Anthony. Yeah, I think not to get uh, off track, which we always do. So right. you're probably used to it if you listen right. to this podcast. But I liked that. I, I think he made her realize that within their relationship, Julie wasn't really doing much considering of what is Anthony thinking or what is Anthony feeling or what is going on with Anthony. Right. Oh, my God. Yeah. Harris Dickinson is his name. But yeah. So I think he really forced her to consider those things and she hadn't before. And I think maybe that made her realize, oh, yeah, this relationship, I really was only thinking about myself. That's true. And speaking of Anthony, a shout out to Tom Burke. I think he he slayed the Anthony character for me. I really enjoyed his portrayal in Souvenir 1. He had very brief appearance in Su- in Souvenir 2, but Souvenir 1, he was incredible. Yeah, I oh, I love him. He was really 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 good. Every the entire cast is amazing. Non-actors, actors, everyone Honor Swinton Byrne is great. Tilda is great. Like, yes. If you are even if you are not maybe interested in what these films are about just by reading description or something, for the acting alone and just for this film that is really they're all very unusual and I think it's because Joanna Hogg doesn't really prepare a script as you're used to typically with like dialogue and everything already mapped out. She her process is very different. And I think that for me, at least, it comes across as a viewer most in the dialogue. The dialogue feels so natural. And I think it's because so much of it is improvised and not things that actors are memorizing and then regurgitating not that that's how acting works but you know what i mean it's things that are coming from their brains based on their understanding of the character it is pretty incredible because you can really take a risk at putting a non-actor and just saying okay here's your here's your story this is where we are right here and she shoots in chronological order which they say is very hard because it doesn't give you a lot of times people don't have insights of what's coming the way that she works because it's developing as you go. So you go into this character maybe thinking, I don't know where I'm supposed to be taking this character. So you almost just have to ad-lib it 
and how she gets such great how she how her friends films turn out so well doing this is amazing to me and i think a lot of that goes back to the editing as well yeah and i will give well we're gonna actually have a lot of resources for joanne hogg if you're interested in her and her process uh we'll link a bunch in our show notes but right seventh row does have a very good book it came out after the souvenir the first one. So there's nothing about the Eternal Daughter or the Souvenir Part 2 in there, but it's it's a book. It's called I think it's called like Tour of Memories, The Souvenir. It's their only book on Joanna Hogg, but it has a lot of interviews with people who work with her frequently like her costume designer on the Souvenir films, uh Hala Lefebvre and her cinematographer and it's just it's a very good resource if you're interested in learning more about her process. And of course, there's an interview with Joanna Hogg in there too. So we'll link to that as well. And I would say check it out if you're one of those people who really want to know more about process and how she works and how she develops from like pre-production to post-production. That book is as useful for figuring all that stuff out. Yes. Fascinating. So maybe we just get into a little bit of a synopsis in case you're like, Oh, I saw The Eternal Daughter, but I haven't seen the souvenir films in a while. Just to give you some sense of what we're talking about, if you need a refresher, the souvenir films follow a character named Julie, a filmmaker who grew up in Norfolk as the only child in a pretty posh, upper crusty family, with parents played by Tilda Swinton and James Spencer Ashworth. The character is loosely autobiographical, which is something Joanna Hogg has discussed in several interviews. And I thought it was interesting that all of the old Super 8 footage featured in the films comes from Hogg's own time in film school. And that Julie's Knightsbridge flat in the first two films of the trilogy is a recreation of Hogg's own flat at the time. And there are tons of other parallels like this. So Julie, played by Honor Swinton Byrne, Tilda Swinton's daughter, lives in London and she attends film school. And in the first film, it's really all centered around Julie's relationship with Anthony, played by Tom Burke, a guy she meets at a party and she grows increasingly attached to despite many glaring red flags. (laughs) And at the end of that film, he dies of a heroin overdose. So in The Souvenir Part 2, Julie starts processing her grief through a new feature-length film about her relationship with Anthony. And while the first film is more about her relationship and how it affects her artistic ambitions, the second film is centered around those artistic ambitions and how she melds them with her personal life, both for self-understanding and as a form of therapy and as just her creative process. And then in the third film, we have a large time jump. So in the first two films, Julie is, I think, 25 and 26. And then in The Eternal Daughter, she is probably in her early 60s. And Julie is now played by Tilda Swinton. And she is on vacation in this film with her mother, Rosalind, also played by Tilda Swinton. At a hotel that was once Rosalind's old family home. I think it was the home of her aunt that she grew up going to. Now it's a hotel and they are on vacation. And it's very much a different, different tonally than the first two films. It's more of like a 
gothic horror story. And it's something that you could totally see on its own and you would get a lot out of it. Or you could see it knowing more about the characters as presented in The Souvenir 1 and 2. It's really just your personal preference for how you want to enjoy the films. Hopefully, if you're listening, you've seen at least one of these films. But if not, we are going to dive in in depth. So we will be revealing some stuff that maybe you don't want to hear. But here we go. <laughs> maybe just to start out, we could talk a little bit about do these films feel like a trilogy to you? And do you feel like having seen the first two souvenir films adds to your understanding or your appreciation of the eternal daughter? I would say the f- the first two films are definitely a duo, back to back. Those complement each other, and I definitely see the connection. The eternal daughter is, in my opinion, could be a standalone film, and I don't necessarily feel like you need to see Souvenir 1 and 2 to get what she's trying to say from the Eternal Daughter out of it. Now, with that being said, I did, after I watched the Eternal Daughter the first time, I did go back and watch Souvenir 1 and 2 again, and then I watched Eternal Daughter again. And I did see some similarities that they brought over, just some little details that they added into the film about Julie and her mom that that connected it back to the other two films. But it's for me, it was nothing that was a deal breaker. I feel like the Eternal Daughter stood on its own two feet about what it was trying to say. But I, I also do feel like it was a good representation of how Julie and her mom's relationship had evolved. I could see the early relationship and I could see how how it had evolved into what it had evolved to pretty easily by knowing how they were in the beginning. But I don't feel like it was a deal breaker that you needed to watch those two films. What about you? Yeah, I agree. I don't really think because their relationship, it felt where it was in The Eternal Daughter felt realistic to me. Like, okay, based on what we know of Julie and Rosalind in the earlier films, yeah, sure, it could progress this way. But it's also like so much time passing that really it could progress anyway. Like, Mm -hmm. I think it could have been any dynamic, really, and I would have believed it because anything can happen in that long period of time. So, yeah, I think there's some stuff to be gained historically, what their relationship is like in those films and where it is that much later in life. But I don't think that it is necessary to really have the context. Uh, It almost seems like the context is more like the little Easter eggs that you get from being a Joanna Hogg fan and having seen the other two films. Like you pointed out that the dresses in the birthday scene at uh, in the Eternal Daughter are the same as in the souvenir. Right. So like that's cool. I love little things like that that make for a richer viewing experience. But if you're not getting that shit, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. That was just like, oh, my God, yeah. I remember seeing those dresses before, and there was another one. Like, this was just, I thought this was really a cute little detail that her mom in the souvenir one, 
the way that her mom calls for the dogs. The dogs are always present. They're they're present in all three of these films, which is cool. They're they're uh, I forget is it a Springer spaniel? It's some type of spaniel yeah. dog that they have. Anyway, the way that her mom calls the dogs, it's a weird like weird thing like like really high pitched call. And in the Eternal Daughter, a dog gets lost. It's found and. Julie calls it in the same way because I remember watching the Eternal Daughter and thinking, that's such a shrill way to call a dog. And then when I heard it in Souvenir One, I was like, oh, that's another little, you know, so it was, yeah, just little gems of, oh, I'm a fan. And I found it. I think the main connection in all three of those films is, once again, which is a big connection for me in all of Joanna Hogg's films is the relationship between two people and especially the relationship between a mother and a daughter in this series of films. It's that that's a big tie that binds of taking down this relationship and getting down to it and seeing where, where are we with this? Because even though souvenir one and two is a lot about Julie and and her artistic endeavors, her mother is a pretty strong presence in her life in both of those films as well. Just thinking about what their relationship is like in the souvenir films, I feel like Rosalind loves Julie. She obviously really loves her and she wants to support her and she doesn't really understand her and she doesn't really understand what she's doing either, but she offers up definitely unconditional love and support and she's a presence. But I think like you can tell that she's not... They're not really connecting on a deep level where Rosalind is like asking probing questions about her art or even in the first film, like really trying to get to understand the relationship and why she is so into Anthony. It's more just like they're there, they're giving her money, uh, meaning her parents and the Rosalind is supporting her and definitely more like emotionally than her dad who is very just kind of kind of cold and kind of not like kind of a dick like I just mm-hmm. really didn't like him very much yeah, he didn't he just seems to he he seems to revolve on the perimeter of the house I, I don't think he wants to be that involved in any of the relationships and that's another thing that I've seen in in her movies I believe it was I think it was it unrelated or was it there was one where the the dad is never present and and even though the father was in the film the mother character controlled the money she always went to her mom for money her dad just kind of like showed up for lunch and left you know that was kind of where he was <laughs> yeah and i think that so the movie yeah the movie you're talking about is archipelago Oh, that's right. Where the dad is supposed to, they're definitely estranged from him and he's going to show up to this vacation they're taking in the silly aisles and then he just never does. And it's obviously a point of contention. So yeah, you're right. Like that is kind of a parallel to the dad and the souvenir. And I think what really soured me on him is in the souvenir too. Rosalind gets into taking a pottery class or ceramics class or whatever, and she's very excited about it, and she's very proud of what she's done. And he is just minimizing of her efforts and minimizing of what she's accomplished. Like, there's one scene where 
Julie accidentally breaks the first object that Rosalind made in her class, and it's this little sugar bowl. And the dad makes some flip comment about how, oh, it's only a tuition, uh, like only a terms fee or something, you know, about how the pot was the cost of like the, the class. And that just to me felt so very like men of that generation and and who were like, you know, have some kind of like manual labor or office job and just have no conception of like what it is like to create something and then watch it get destroyed and how that can be just like fucking heartbreaking. Like you could just tell he had no idea of that feeling at all and could not empathize whatsoever. Right. He did not see her as a human being. I felt like she was more of a caregiver. She took care of the home. She piddled in the garden. She even probably, you know, took care of their finances. And he he could not relate to her on an emotional level as a human being. I could see the hurt in her face. And I have to ask you, I mean, what really breaking down that scene where Julie, you know, haphazardly places the little pot she's trying to put it on a mantle and you clearly see it falls. I mean, do you feel like it was an accident? Do you feel like it was some type of subconscious thing of Julie? I mean, what even brings Rosalind to want to start this? Is it seeing her daughter trying to create something and so she piggybacks on because she's trying to find more meaning in her life? Is her daughter encouraging? Like, what did you take from that being broke? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, yes. So I think Rosalind is seeing, even if she can't really understand what exactly Julie is doing, I think she sees how meaningful it is to Julie and how Julie gets so much out of creating and making films and living this type of life. And I think Rosalind sees that and she wants some kind of equivalent or she wants to see if she could have some kind of equivalent. But I think also that Julie has grown up seeing her mom in this very specific type of role where she's not a creative. She's, you know, the mother. She's the caregiver. She's the money hander-outer. She's all these, like, practical things. And so I think on some level, Julie is not, like, respecting her as an artist. Right. Like, even though Julie probably knows and, I mean, has been told that this is important to her mother, I don't think she's treating it with the care that it deserves. And maybe that's because she feels that her mom has not treated her artistic pursuits with the care that they deserve. Like, yes, she's supported her and given her money for them, but she's never tried to connect with her on a deeper level. So maybe it's like a carelessness passed down from generation to generation. And maybe it's also that knowledge of what her mom was like uh, during her upbringing that is seared into her head and making her not treat it with care. I like that it's a carelessness brought down from generation to generation. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that that's a really good insight on that where, because her mom definitely does not connect with her on that. Like you said, there is a support there. And without her mom being willing to finance these projects, Julie would definitely not be able to go forward. That's for sure. But her mom also doesn't talk with her about, you know, what's inspiring you and, you know, what are you wanting to do? It's just more or less like, okay, well, you know, I'm not really sure what's going on, but, you know, we want to try to help you and here's the check and I'm going to go cut some roses in the garden or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's just, 
And I'm telling you, when you're when you're in your early 20s, I look back, I was so self-absorbed in my teen years and my early 20s. I just shudder when I look back on myself. But I just think that that's a, a normal thing in life a lot of times where you're still maturing and you're trying to break away and find your own path. And, you know, depending on the type of relationship that you've had with your parents, I, I don't fault. Julie, I don't think she would deliberately want to hurt her mother, but I think that, yeah, there's a lot of subconscious, maybe significance to her breaking that her mom's first sugar pot that she ever created, that she felt that her mom felt artistically attached to. Did you assume, especially based on the eternal daughter where they're at this hotel and you find out that this hotel, which is like very beautiful and huge and like definitely does not look like somebody's home, used to be. No, I love Yeah, it. it was beautiful. Um, but it used to be, I think, um, Rosalind's aunt's house. Right. And that she grew up going there. And so I assume like Rosalind is the one in the family who comes from money or like aristocratic ties or something. And so that's when I looked back on it, I was like, okay, well, that makes sense why she is the one that Julie is coming to for money, not only because their relationship is maybe closer, but also maybe because she does have the financial power in the relationship in some way, maybe. Yes. Yeah, that's a good observation that I'm sure that's true. Yeah, it's 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 complicated to think about and in the internal daughter it seems like the roles in a way have been reversed between Julie and Rosalind where Julie is definitely more of the caretaker but I I felt like maybe I don't know maybe Julie's always been a little bit uh sensitive about how her mother sees her, how she wants her mother to be happy. I don't think she wants to make her mother upset. Um, I, I feel like it may be in the eternal daughter. It comes out a little bit more. But do you feel like, in a way, their roles have changed a lot. But do you feel like maybe their roles haven't changed? Like Julie hasn't really progressed? Or what? what's your feeling on how from the souvenir into the eternal daughter the relationship changed, if it did. Yeah, I mean, I think, I was thinking about this, and I feel like Julie, even in the souvenir, uh, is a little sensitive to Rosalind's health. There's that one scene where she comes into the apartment, I think she's been like shopping or something, and she has a headache, and Julie is like fussing over her and you know, wanting to give her water or tea or whatever and to um, take care of her. So I think Julie mm -hmm. has always been uh, attuned to her mom's maybe like physical needs. But for sure in The Eternal Daughter, she is fussing over her constantly. But I also wondered, and I don't know, but I also kind of wondered if some of that was because she had brought Rosalind to this place, kind of selfishly wanting to use her stories and her recollections of her childhood to make a new film. And unwittingly, uh, she's mm. brought her mom to a place where she's actually experienced quite a bit of trauma. Like when her mom talks about her experience of being in this place as a kid, all this stuff comes up about how 
what had happened? There were like were bombs dropped when they were present in the hotel. Um, like a, did a war break out? I'm like getting the the years of when they were there all, all mixed up. But there was like some traumatic event like that. And then you also find out that she had experienced a miscarriage in this hotel, uh, which was the family home at the time. So she has like painful memories associated with this place. And Julie has taken her there mm-hmm. and sort of mined her trauma unwittingly for her own creative gain and so i wondered if maybe some of it was her feeling guilt over having done that right i think guilt is a big player in a lot of what we're seeing in eternal daughter and i i think you're right because as we saw in souvenir 2 and maybe a little bit in souvenir 1 as well anthony's death seems to have been a creative catalyst for Julie. And I believe that her mom's death, even though the way that the eternal daughter starts out, which I think I'm the only person that believed her mom was alive until the very end of the film, when it's clearly made known that she's not alive, that Julie's having kind of this uh, eternal conversation between her mom and herself through memories and, and maybe what she thought would have happened if she would have been able to take her mom here. But anyway, blah, blah, blah. She also, the way that she used Anthony's death as an artistic endeavor and hadn't really thought about his feelings, maybe she was trying to reconcile using coming to the hotel and trying to imagine what her mother would have felt, what her mother would have, what she had read in letters, but she was imagining what her mother would have revealed to her. And she was trying to overcome some of the guilt saying, yes, I'm using my mom's death and her, you know, trauma in her life to be the inspiration for my next film as a way of atoning for that. And also, I would have to say maybe guilt of not having the type of relationship that she wanted to have with her mom or what would, because I know having experienced my mom's death, there's always the shoulda, coulda, woulda. What if I had done this? What if I had done that? I mean, it it plays on you, you know, of things you could have done better, not only in your relationship with your mom during your life, but how maybe you could have handled things at the end of their life. So I think, yeah, I think that overcoming guilt was a lot of what was, especially what was going on in The Eternal Daughter. Yeah, and I think that's interesting to parallel it with how she used Anthony's death and their whole relationship like how she mined it for her own creative purposes. And like we talked about how in the souvenir part two, Peter or Pete, whatever his name is, the one playing Anthony, played by Harris Dickinson, how he's asking Julie as the director, he's asking her, he's saying like, well, what were Anthony's motivations or what was Anthony thinking or what was, what do you think he was feeling? And yeah, Julie is realizing that she has not thought about that at all. Like she, it's all been her own preoccupations and her self-absorption. And like, you know, Joe was saying, she's of this age where this is how you're thinking about life. But now in The Eternal Daughter, we have Julie who is really trying to, yes, still use someone else for her own creative gain, but she has really put herself in the position where she's thinking about the motivations and the feeling and she's trying to put herself more into this empathetic role and not just 
using that situation and thinking about it solely from her own perspective. Like she's trying to consider her mom's point of view. And so I think that is that is growth, like uh, both personal growth and growth as an artist, too. So I didn't really thought of it about about it in that way, but that's interesting. And one thing that I've noticed in, I would think, all of Hogg's films, maybe not the one we saw Caprice, because I'm actually a little murky on how that one ended, but on all her other films that I've recently watched or rewatched, she always ends things with some type of lesson learned or upbeat or the promise of a new day. It always seems like that that's, that's kind of a thing. Not that everything has a Pollyanna ending and everything's resolved and everything's going to be good now, but it's always like, yeah, you know what? I I've I see now a little more than I've seen before and I have a little bit of hope because that's kind of how life is, you know. We don't we don't have all the answers, but we have moments sometimes of clarity and we can go forward some days a little more hopeful than others. And I feel like she harnesses that at the end of each one of her films and I do feel like at The Eternal Daughter she may not have had full closure with her mom's relationship because I don't think you ever have full closure with relationships with your parents, <laughs> no matter what. Yeah. No matter if you have the most wonderful talks with them, once they're gone and you can't speak with them anymore, there's always going to be something a little open-ended about that. But I feel like that in The Eternal Daughter, she did, she did wrestle with some demons and maybe came across with at least a realization of how she can justify going forward with her film and making it something that she doesn't feel as guilty about doing. Do you feel like Julie has any guilt in The Souvenir Part 2 regarding her use of Anthony's death and their relationship to creatively fuel her? I did not get that same feeling like she had any type of remorse. And I'm going to tell you why, because I feel like their relationship was more of they used each other. I feel like he used her for money, a place to stay, a way to, even though he was a heroin addict, he was a very... He liked to be in the best restaurants. He liked to have these experiences. He liked to be a man of mystery. And I felt like her being so naive, young, she was young and creative. I felt like he latched onto that. She turned to him a lot for inspiration. And he did listen to her. And I feel like he gave her some good feedback. But I felt like that that also made him feel important. Like, he opened up some truths to her about her work, and he seemed interested, but he definitely used her, you know, in some really pretty horrific ways. So I feel like at the same time, she may have been intrigued by him, and she may have been lacking inspiration out of her bubble. She was in this little bubble that she grew up in of privilege, of white privilege, and she maybe subconsciously saw Anthony as something alluring outside, you know, an older man, and he was with the State Department, supposedly, and took her to fine dining and introduced her to some art, and she felt intrigued by that. So I feel like it, they just kind of, like, used each other 
a little bit. I mean, I think she did care about him, but I think that it was both of their motivations were selfish. Yeah, this makes me think of I was visiting my parents over the weekend and I had a drink with a friend and she was talking about how when she grew up, she was really like hungry for criticism, like critiques of the things she was doing, you know, like artistic things like writing, like really wanting somebody to to give her critical feedback and how her mom would just tell her, oh, it's wonderful. It's magnificent. You know, effusive uh, praise, mm-hmm. which is what I feel like Julie got just effusive praise and support. But what she really wanted was somebody to help her get to know herself as an artist. Like she was looking for someone to either help shape her or help open her up to new things or even just to tell her like what what is it that you're doing that is resonating with me? What is it that you're doing that I like? Like she wanted that. And Anthony was maybe the first person in her life to give her that. Now, yeah, she's in film school and she's getting feedback from people. But I feel like up to the point where she meets Anthony, the feedback she's getting is mostly from, yeah, that board of older white men who are the ones approving, I don't know, financing for her projects and shit. So she's not even up to this point. I don't feel like we've seen her get much from peers either. Mm -hmm. Now, Souvenir 2 is she gets much more peer feedback and it's often very harsh and it often hurts her feelings. But I think Anthony is the first kind of like gentle figure-ish to enter into her life and to kind of tell her, oh, this is interesting. This is not interesting. Uh, And from what she interprets as a place of care. I think you're right. And I think it's very interesting that you said she was craving true feedback because that sparked a memory of me when you just said that on Souvenir 2 when Patrick's character is making a film and it's a it's a hilarious scene but it also really impacts that because he's asking for feedback and everybody's like you know even Julie Julie's character is sitting there going oh well yes that scene resonated with me and he's like okay that's you know marvelously ambivalent Somebody tell me, what what does it make you feel? What are you feeling here? And no one will tell him. And he even says, like, you're forcing me to have a tantrum here. And then finally he just stomps off so disgusted because no one is giving him true feedback. So that does seem to be a theme, definitely, that you've hit on there between her and Richard, one of the allures between her and Anthony, I'm sorry, that he will give her so much of what an artist craves for and a lot of times does not get. Yeah, for sure. And um, he is he's interesting because he's a little like further in his career. Right. Patrick is. And it's interesting, like in the second one, he's working on this bigger, bigger budget film. And that's when he's getting so irritated with everyone. And at the same time, so like we said in the first film, Julie's not really getting the feedback that she craves and she's getting it from Anthony. And then in the second film, Souvenir Part 2, Julie is getting more feedback from her peers, but it is often, I don't even know that I would say it's like 
not necessarily constructive. I, I don't think it's it's constructive um, because let's maybe talk about that scene where they have been working on Julie's film, which is an exploration of her relationship with Anthony. And everyone is getting super irritated at her because they're not working from a shooting script and she's changing things and she's causing all of these frustrations for the people who are collaborating with her. And I think, is it her cinematographer who is finally like the last fucking straw and he just mm. is like, well, you know, this is totally, basically saying like, this is unprofessional. You're not following protocol. You're changing things. You're making our lives more difficult. Like, we, we like help us help you or we're gonna just walk off. And it's a scene where everyone is arguing about it around Julie. And she's just sitting there and she's saying nothing. And so it's like, yeah, she goes from getting really not very much to getting so much and she doesn't know how to process it and how to weed through what is useful, what is not, and how not to take it personally. So you're really seeing her at this step up artistically where now she is getting that feedback, but she's having a hard time dealing with it and processing it. And at the same time, she's trying to work through this complex relationship with this man who died of a heroin overdose yeah. and then in the eternal daughter where do you feel like she is creatively i guess do you feel like what do you what do you think she is looking for in this hotel and and with her new project yeah i think so many years have passed and, and i i love that scene that you referenced in souvenir too i felt like it was like chaotic criticism and almost just complaining rather than trying to really work with her. And I like that she was breaking the molds because that's what Johanna Hogg really does. She doesn't have a set script. And a lot of people are disarmed, by, would be disarmed by the way that she works. And I think that's why she brings in a lot of the same people over and over and over because they know her. And it's it's difficult, but I like that she does that. So I think how it translates over into the eternal daughter as far as her creativity, I feel like I feel like in the souvenir, she's got all this creativity. She's got so much she wants to say and do, and it's the lack of experience or she's trying to find her own voice. Fast forward into the eternal daughter, you know, 30, 40 years later, and we're seeing a woman that apparently has been successful enough in making films. I feel like she's trying to find something to say. I feel like maybe she's come to a creative impasse in her life. She may, the words may have dried up or maybe the ideas have dried up. And I feel like that she is going back to this relationship with her mom to look to, to jumpstart this writer's block that she's having or you know, she seems to be at a point in her life. She she mentioned something in one of her imaginary conversations with her mom. She tells her mom, I've neglected my husband. I don't have any kids. I don't have anything to, to fall back on. All I have is you. So I feel like maybe she's come to a point in her life where the well is dried up. She has no inspiration. Her mother, she feels like, was a big inspiration in her life. Now she's gone. So. I feel like maybe she's searching on a different end of the spectrum of her creativity in this movie. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think that it makes sense to me. So I think in The Eternal Daughter, we have 
a Julie who is more like the protagonist and maybe like unrelated, right? Where mm-hmm. she's come to this point in her life where, so the protagonist and unrelated is this woman who is on vacation with her friend from college who she hasn't seen in a while. Like they're both now middle-aged and the friend has children and the protagonist does not. And the protagonist is clearly just going through some struggles and you find out she's sort of having a midlife crisis and it's maybe like, um, what's the word? Like the catalyst for it is her coming to terms with like the fact that she can't have children. Like she thought she was pregnant and then find out she wasn't and that she's like starting menopause. And I feel like Julie and the Eternal Daughter is maybe going through something similar where she is coming to terms with the fact that she is middle-aged or upper middle-aged and she's her mom is dead and she's having trouble creating and she thinks of her films as children, you know, as as birthing something creative and and when that's not happening, like when she's not able to create and she's not able to connect and all of maybe her previous sources have dried up, it is a it is maybe a, a catalyst for confusion or for crisis because it makes you think about if those things aren't in your life, then what is your life? Mm-hmm. And I do think that that is disorienting for pretty much every person out there, like It's a disorienting thing to realize that you can't really depend on other things to bring you, you know, satisfaction or happiness or whatever it is that you're searching for emotionally that it's unreliable. You're not always going to be able to get it. So that's that's kind of where I thought Julie and the eternal daughter was in this place of being like, oh, fuck, like, uh, oh, this is life. What what is it then? Like, what what do I have and what do I hang my hat on if I don't have these things that I always had. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like she's taken a playbook from when she was 25 with Anthony and she's using this this traumatic event in her life to kind of jumpstart her into into being able to create again, which is I don't know. Do I want to say it's selfish? I I don't I don't know that I would say selfish of her. I just think that I, I and I do believe that in a in a way I can definitely see where I would be very similar to Joanna Hogg if I was going to tell a story. The only way I could truly tell it in a great way for myself personally would be to if I could relate to it. I'm just not able to transcend my I'm not able to transcend my own experiences into something I know nothing about and be able to effectively convey that to someone I don't think I just don't have that ability. So I feel like she was using something out of her life, which she has every right to do, in order to tell a story. And I know it was her mom's story, and I know she felt guilty about it, but her mom was a part of her life and was a big part of her life. And I think it wasn't just Julie's fault that that happened, that maybe she was too involved in her mom's life. I think it was both of them in a way, clinging to each other. So I feel like, yeah, it, I, I feel like that she had the right to go back here, explore that, and to to use that. Yeah, and I think with all of her films, they are they are open enough. I think I think what Joanna Hogg does a lot at the time is she presents you with a scenario, 
and she gives you enough to understand the emotionality of it. Like you understand the emotionality, you understand how the characters are feeling, you understand how they feel in relation to each other, but you might just not have all the details. Like you don't know exactly all the historicity of their relationship, Mm -hmm. or maybe there are things that they're discussing that you don't know what that event is explicitly. Like you can kind of guess from context clues, but you're not really sure. She does that in all of her films, and I think maybe even more than any of the other ones in The Eternal Daughter, because... As we've said, it's this film where presumably Julie is at this hotel alone and her mom has been dead and she's imagining these things happening with her mom. But I think there are also like a bunch of different ways you can read it, like The Eternal Daughter, the movie that we are watching. Is this the movie that Julie made after her mom died and she was trying to reconcile her relationship with her mom? Like, is what we're watching the product of? Julie's process. I think you could read it that way. I think you could read it like more literally, where yes, you have your character of Julie and she is really in this hotel and she is really working on this project. And at the same time, she really is like imagining these times with her mom. And so some of the things are real and some of them are just in Julie's head or more, yeah, more cerebral or um, imaginary or spectral or whatever you want to call them. So, yeah, I think there's different ways that you can read it. And I think that because of that, her films open up really interesting avenues of like critical analysis because there is a lot of there are a lot of different ties that you could make a case for depending on what your own preoccupations are. Absolutely. She brings a lot of room for your own personal experiences to come into play. And I believe it changes the meaning for everybody in her films. To me, that's part of what makes a film timeless, what makes a film stick in your craw, makes you think about it. I know when I first saw Souvenir, it stuck with me. And then when we saw Souvenir 2, oh my God, I was like, I'm obsessed with everything that happened in both of these films. And I thought about them on and on a lot. And when I heard The Eternal Daughter was coming out, I was beside myself. I was like, oh, you know, I can't wait. I can't wait to see this. And I was so excited. And it was such a departure that, you know, at first I was like, wow, this is so different. And it could be where if you were expecting something exactly like The Souvenir, like a true trilogy, you may be a little disappointed in it. But I think that it ended up being for me, as meaningful only from the from the perspective that once again she she speaks in a way that is so subjective to each person that you could put some type of experience or like you said, a different meaning on the film, and I think it's brilliant that how she's able to do that in her films, yeah, I think so too, and I mean, I will say the eternal daughter is not my favorite of her films. It's not to say I don't like it because I enjoyed the experience of watching it very much. Like I, and I mean, if you're telling me I get to watch Tilda Swinton in two different roles in a sort of haunted, like foggy old hotel. Yeah, of of course I'm going to watch that. And of course I'm going to like it. Like I don't even really need very much for me to like baseline enjoy this film. But I don't think 
for for me, I didn't feel like it went as deeply as the souvenir films did. But I don't really, again, I'm like, is that really a, a criticism of the eternal daughter? I think it's just like she she had the she set the bar so high for herself with those first two films that my expectations were like sky high for there being like layer after layer after layer of experience and emotionality. And I didn't feel like there was as much of that here. But again, I don't really feel like that's necessarily a critique of the film because the film works on a more simplistic level. So I don't know. I think your enjoyment of it will maybe depend on how much you're trying to get out of it and how much you're able to just enjoy it for what it is, maybe without trying to necessarily like expect something that will give you like as many layers of the onion as the souvenir films. Yeah. And I think maybe even putting it together as a trilogy may have set it up for something unfair that you were looking for, you know, like it unfairly set it up as this is going to be the, in the exact same vein as the two souvenirs. Like it could, it almost needs to be like, yes, there's the two souvenirs and it's a duo, but then the eternal daughter is something completely different, you know? And I know that that was impossible to do because we're dealing with the same characters, but I feel for me, for the eternal daughter, I I really resonated with the film. I don't know if it's because I went through a lot of, I went through the experience of caretaking for my mom when she died. I'm close to the same age as Tilda Swenson is, is in the film that Julie is in this film. So I, I, I feel like a lot of times, you know, maybe that was just my experiences. So I was able to you know, project my own experiences into that. And it made it where I felt it was a little more fleshy. So maybe that was part of it. But I I do, I do feel like that Tilda Swinton was incredible. And there's very few actors that could have pulled that off playing a dual role and it being believable and not cheesy or, or stupid in a way. And I feel like she did it. And it was an incredible tour de force for her in acting. (laughs) I really feel like that. Yeah. When I first heard that she was going to play both roles, I was kind of like, uh, really? Is that a good idea? But it worked. It worked. Yeah. I And I, I wanted to ask you because, you know, in our last episode when we were talking about Tar, you were saying, and I, I mean, I agreed with you that like, it was just made as like a tour de force for Kate Blanchett and that it just didn't work mm-hmm. for us because that kind of movie is hard to do. But like this is very much a tour de force for Tilda Swinton, but it works. And is it just be- like, do you think it's just because Tilda is a better actor than Kate? Um, I don't I don't think it's that. But do you think it's because yeah. we like the characters more or the characters are giving us more emotionally or like why why do you think this one works so well with it being so Hmm. tilda centric yeah that's a good question because it was definitely a tour de force performance and first of all let me say that i love kate blanchett like i do tilda swinton there was no shade at kate in in her performance i i don't think it's that at all i think i mean if i had to just put my finger on what was the difference I think it was, I would have to put 
some of the difference maybe on the direction of the film, the director. I feel like in Tar, I was just given so much inf- information to decipher. The movie started off running at 100%, big conversations, a lot of information to to go through. I felt like everything was just dramatic and um, big, loud symphonies and everything was just ah, right there. And I was having to sift through a lot of information where I feel like the direction from Joanna Hogg and her film was more of almost the complete opposite of, I'm not going to give you a lot. I'm going to give you one piece of chocolate and leave you wanting to for more and you find your own experience through the film and look at what's being said in between the lines to kind of figure out what's going on with these characters. So I feel like I was able, she gave me just enough to satisfy me. I feel like I got enough to satisfy me. And I made some discoveries on my own where maybe in tar, it was too much of an overload for me to figure out, to be able to really connect with that character. I see some similarities between, like, I think Todd Field and Joanna Hogg do one thing similar. And that's like, they'll often drop you into a conversation that there's like not context for it. But if you pay attention, there's like a lot going on and uh, things to absorb. I think where maybe it it differs is I think when Joanna Hogg does that, it's stuff that is not crucial to your understanding of right. the character or your understanding of the plot or anything. It just adds. So if you're paying attention to those little conversations that seem inconsequential, there's a lot you can take away and that will add, will add. But they're not like a linchpin for your understanding of the dynamics or the character, whatever. I think in Tar, there were more of those where it actually was pretty important that you understood it, because if you didn't, you could read other things wrong. Mm. So like the the character like that um, Lydia Tar, the, the conversation where Lydia Tar is at uh, dinner with her mentor and they're talking about like Alma Mahler and they're talking uh, about these these people who are real life people who have direct parallels and impact your understanding of Lydia and what's going on with her. Like, I think if you miss those, it really does hinder your ability to understand what the film is trying to do. And I don't feel like Joanna Hogg ever pulls that shit. It's more like it would be good if you paid attention here, but if you don't, you're not going to have a totally incorrect or incomplete understanding of what is trying to be accomplished. Mm -hmm. That's a good point because I remember us texting a little bit about the films as we were watching them and you made a good point of did you hear the conversations that they were and this was in I forget if it was souvenir one or two I think one where they were having a conversation that you just randomly overheard at a party that Julie was having and that they were really it seemed like an inane conversation but it was actually very important that kind of related to Julie's situation of growing up in a bubble and being sheltered, but having privilege of having her mom finance everything and living in a little posh apartment. And and I was like, oh, yeah, I, because I remember I texted you. I'm like, you know, I didn't really pay that much attention to it, but I'm going to go back and listen 
to the conversations. And I made sure and really honed in on even the most inane things that would pop up in conversation. And you're right. It was something that that did enhance the movie, but it wasn't a deal breaker. Yeah. Yeah. Like it almost made me realize when I heard those early conversations where her classmates were talking about privilege and, you know, if they were like talking about, oh, if I had kids, you know, of course, I would want them to have every advantage I could give them, but I'd want them to be aware of it. And it felt very pointed toward Julie. And then it makes you think later in Souvenir 2 when Julie is having trouble with some of her collaborators and they are really kind of ganging up on her and being harsh. It does make you wonder, is part of that because they are aware of her financial situation and they are aware that her mom is financing this film and that because she's financing it, she has leeway to do things differently. She's able to follow rules, her own rules, you know, whereas other ones have to depend on outside financing. And so they are more um, indebted to their shooting script and not as able to be flexible and make changes. Like it did make me wonder, okay, is there some resentment that has been bubbling a little bit, you know? But I don't think you need that. You don't need that context. If you don't have it, you're still able to understand like the emotional beats of that conversation and that dynamic. Yeah, that's true. And then it kind of gives you an insight to Julie of why she would even search for a relationship with, with a person like Anthony and why she, maybe why she was willing to put up with so much where I would have kicked his ass to the curb long before she did. And then eventually even took him back. But just that desperate crave for something different outside of her life of getting out of that little protected bubble she was in. And those conversations that seemed so inane were actually a very pointed thing of this is where she's starting from. This is going to give context of why she's going into this relationship with a heroin addict. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because she clearly wanted to get outside of herself. Like it's, you know, the souvenir one, she's trying to make that movie about Sunderland and it's just this kind of like Ken Loach style documentary and it's totally not at all anything that would parallel or have connections to her own life. It's like, so she's trying to like just force herself into this space to make this thing that she wants to make because, you know, she thinks that's serious or whatever. She wants to be political, but She's not looking within herself for a way to do that. And I feel like Anthony gives her a way within herself and within her privilege, but takes her enough outside of it or gives her something to directly rail against or to challenge her. It's like it's yeah, it's the thing that she needs to explore something more serious and different, but it's still something that she is directly involved in. And so she has perspective and insight on the situation because it's happening to her. Right. So that's true. That's true. I mean, that's life experiences. How can you, to me, to be a writer, uh, to be a screenwriter, to direct, I mean, you have to have some type of vision. Sometimes people can be very young and not have a lot of life experiences and, and, and bring forth a message that you just wonder how they were able to do it. But I would think that the majority of people have to live 
these experiences and they crave them in order. And she was at such a young point in her career in this film that she was just craving it. And here he comes and he was, he had his own cravings that he needed her. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's the beauty of Johanna Hogg. And to me, just the way that she can bring forth these seemingly above like you just look at it and you you think you know what you're seeing, but then when you peel back this onion, you're finding so many wonderful little layers that she's just delicately buried within her films. I just love it. Yeah. And I will just say, I, I think something something I find interesting, so I feel like a lot of times, and this is especially with women who make art that is maybe loosely autobiographical i feel like there's a little bit of an obsession of trying to figure out like well what really happened what what did you make up and what is real and what is not and even we've mentioned it a couple times on the podcast but even with that podcast once upon a time at bennington college where they talk about donna tart and it's all about like well what is real and what did she make up and what did she take from reality and you know, it's this like hunger to figure out what the real story is behind the story. And <laughs> I was going somewhere with this. I don't know what I wanted to say about this, but just I think that there's like a tendency to be dismissive of it when it's a woman. Like, oh, you're just mining your own personal history or your own personal drama and you're fictionalizing it lightly and then you're making it into a story. But yeah, I think all artists do that to some extent, even people who are writing completely outside of plot-wise what they know and what they've experienced, you still have to come at things, I think, from your own emotional understanding or or some commonality. I don't I think it's I think it's incredibly difficult to pull emotions that you've not ever experienced or that you've not ever deeply observed. So I don't know. I guess it's just me saying like all art is personal in some way. It's just some is more directly, clearly right. personal than others. And I think I understand why Joanna Hogg is so private and maybe why she I don't know if she gets a little irritated by those types of questions, but I imagine she does of like people trying to suss out like what really what is what is real and what is imaginary and why do we care so much right. about it exactly exactly i saw in a lot of interviews they were asking her well, what did your mom say because i think her mom died uh, after souvenir two but before the eternal daughter came out and everyone was saying well, what did she or maybe she died in between the souvenirs i can't remember it was sometime oh i thought she was still alive no she died joanna Ma are you sure yeah because i thought I, I read an interview where she said oh my mom is still alive no she died i think she died where they were filming the eternal daughter We'll double check that before we end this, but I'm pretty sure that her mom just recently passed away, like maybe last year or something like that. Okay, sorry, we're 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 editing this together haphazardly because we just had an an offhand conversation about whether or not Joanna Hogg's mom is alive or dead because there's some misinformation perhaps on the internet. There's one interview at the end of November where Joanna Hogg mentions that her mom is still alive, and then there are other 
film sites, reputable film sites that are saying that her mom died during post-production on The Eternal Daughter. So we were, we had a long, long conversation trying to figure out if, uh, if Joanna Hogg's mom is still with us or not. And we don't have a satisfying conclusion right as of yet but with all that being said i think the most important takeaway that i have from johanna hogg her films is i would say if you have seen these films fantastic if you've not seen some of the earlier films i would definitely recommend going back seeing her progression as a director i think that you you would Definitely see how she has grown over the years in her films and also a very relatable tangent that is a trademark in all her films, such as relationships, the way that she shot the films. So I would say if you have not done a Johanna Hogg deep dive, do one. Yes, for sure. And one little treat you would have to look forward to if you haven't seen her early films is Tom Hiddleston oh, yeah. because he has roles in every one of her first three films. Yes. So that in, you know, Tom Hiddleston is, I always forget that he's actually a good actor because now I don't even, he's like in all that Disney plus shit and he doesn't even like do good movies anymore, but he's a good actor. And this, Rewatching these has, has reminded me of that. Woo! Here we are. All right. For the, for, we're sorry, we're dropping back in now because we had a whole slew of technical difficulties, and I can't remember what we were last talking about. And I think I don't know. I think I think the ghost of. Johanna's undead mother yeah. <laughs> is coming around to say, don't don't be speculating about me anymore. Just go forward. Yeah. How dare you bitches talk about whether I'm alive or dead. Fuck you. It's, it's, it's our Ooh. sign to end this podcast. Yes. Yes. How are we going to end this? We're I, just, I think, honestly, we're just going to wrap it up and say, like, go see Joanna Hogg's, all of Joanna Hogg's movies. They're all good. You'll get something out of them. Just trust us on this one and- for fans of of her work, like yeah, we would love to know what film you like the most, and yeah, what about her work resonates with you? Absolutely, see them, see everything you can. I believe we rented the Eternal Daughter for like five bucks off of Prime Video, so it is available. Please check it out. Yes, yeah, all these are available somewhere, so go watch them. And I think, I think next time, I haven't mentioned this to you yet, but I know this is, I think you were going to go see this at the Speed Museum, but I think we should do St. Omer. Yes, yes, it is actually coming to one of my favorite local cinemas, the Speed Museum Cinema. I believe it's coming February 27th, it may be a little bit later in the month, but I would be willing to try to see it somewhere else if it's available now. Yeah, it's now available streaming, I think, for only like $5 or something on like a bunch of platforms. So we could, I think we should watch that and see it. I've heard really good things about it. And um, for anyone else who's wondering this, Alice Diop is not related to Maddie Diop. I thought maybe they were like cousins or sisters because Maddie Diop is the woman who directed Atlantics. But they're not related. Hmm. 
Just one of yeah. those similar names. And then I guess one other thing I'll say to potentially entice you to see it if you if you haven't already, uh, Claire Mathen is the cinematographer, and she is the one who does all of the cinematography for um, Celine Siama. So, yeah. I'm in. I'm ready. Okay, so for once, (laughs) we're actually going to tell you next on the podcast, we are going to do St. Omer. So I think that's how you say it. If you want to watch it and uh, then come back here and dissect it with us in a few weeks, we we would love that. I have something to live for. Yay! Yeah. (laughs) All right. So until next time, thank you so much for listening. And we will see you when it's time to talk about St. Omer. Bye, everyone.